Oh, for those who are out in TV land, um, just want to introduce myself very quickly. I'm, I'm Jeff Brown. I'm from Lovell, Wyoming. And uh, uh, I came to Laramie Valley Chapel in 1989. I was back, like you said, back in the 80s, the best uh, decade there ever was. The greatest generation, I think they called us. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, Jason, would you mind bringing me that Bible? I'm sorry. I left it there on purpose so I could tell Jason what to do. It makes me feel important. But uh, Sheila and the boys and I spent 23 years here in Laramie. Thank you. And uh, minus a few to go to seminary and go to Costa Rica and things like that. And we have just enjoyed it so much. And now we're in Jackson, Wyoming, planting a church. So uh, today our text is going to be in Acts chapter 17. We'll be there most of the time. I'm going to make a few other references to verses that you can turn to if you'd like. Or you can just stay where you're at. I'm also going to have my watch up here looking at what time it is, and I'm going to try and kind of watch that so that we're done by Thursday or so. I have the calendar on there. What's the task that confronts the church in America today? It's sharing Christ with people who are moving further and further away from our Christian view of the world either because they are becoming less and less Christian or they're coming from countries that aren't Christian at all. And sometimes we get a little discouraged about that. Sometimes we get a little vexed about that. I like that word. It's a King James word, and we're going to see it in Acts 17 today. Um, it is a challenge sometimes to share with people, to preach to people, to minister to people who are very, very different from us and sometimes hostile towards us. It's becoming in vogue, in style, to be hostile towards Christianity. It's becoming something popular, something that people celebrate you for on Facebook and on put the little thumbs up and like and all that kind of stuff. And it's getting a little bit scary to be a Christian at times. Uh, here in, in a university town, Laramie is more progressive than most Wyoming towns. Now, if, if you live in Wamsutter, you know, everybody's a Republican. It's, it's, you know, it's no big deal to be friends with everybody, but here it's different in Laramie. And in Jackson, it's different. In Thermopolis, it's different for other reasons. But uh, <laughs> our towns, Laramie and Jackson, are very similar and, and quite progressive, and, and in reality, increasingly pagan. When I say pagan, I don't mean to talk down to anyone, I just mean pre-Christianity, parts of Europe and Africa and Asia that didn't know anything about Christ, didn't anything, know anything about the God of the Bible, and worshipped in vain, worshipped in a way that to the best of their ability, this is what makes sense to us, but it had nothing to do with reality, with spiritual realities. That's what I mean when I say pagan. And more and more we're seeing uh, a revival of that sort of thing in our country. Here's the good news. God has equipped us, specially equipped us, to work with people just like that. And it's fun. It's not always fun. But sometimes it's really a great time. And those people who are very far from Christianity, very liberal, very whatever they are that we, you and I are not really like, make wonderful godly believers when they get saved. And we all know many of those people. And we want to see many more come to the Lord. What is our task today? How do we do it? What I'm, my attempt today is to talk about this subject in just a very practical way. Here's how we can do some things using a sermon that Paul 
used in the city of Athens. We'll talk a little bit about the city of Athens in a minute and the similarities that they have to Laramie and Jackson and the, the differences. Um, did the Bible believers, did believers in Bible times confront these kind of problems? We kind of sometimes think that they did not, but I think they did. Is God going to save any of those lost people? Is he going to save any people on the left or the right? Is he going to save any people who are confused about their gender? Is he going to save anyone who voted for Trump? We'll have to see. I'm giving you a bad time. All right, I'm giving Trump a bad time. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17, verse 16 through 34. I think verse 32, actually. No, 34. I want to make sure. Acts 17, verse 16 through 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, verse 16, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Anybody been to a place that's full of idols? You know, a few of you have been. Yeah, St. George. Okay. <clears throat> he, his spirit was provoked. Now, that's where the old King James says his spirit was vexed within him. Now, vex is kind of a cool word. It sounds like hex or maybe even lex luthor. But it means simply... Uh, in his spirit being provoked, this was a way to say that the godly part of uh, Paul the Apostle, the part that God had put in there, the spirit of God, well, uh, it was bothered. Paul's spirit was bothered that these people worship idols and not God. It provoked him to jealousy for God. Now, remember that. We're going to talk about when our spirit is provoked for those same reasons. Verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. We learned about Epicureanism and Stoicism in uh, junior high civics. I'm not sure why it belongs there, but I guess it didn't fit in math. But the academic elite of the day... So these people were the leading philosophers of the day, Epicureans and Stoics. Some were saying, middle of verse 18, some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? What would this seed picker wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange or foreign gods because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. What was their job? Sitting around talking about something new. That was their job. I don't think they got paid for it. But Athens was fairly affluent. They had a lot of people who didn't have to work. So they sat around talking about the latest and the greatest. That's pretty amazing. That's, that's quite a statement about a town. I don't think you could have said that about most towns in the ancient world. What were they doing in most towns in the ancient world? Working with a shovel or something like that, right? They were working all day long. And yet the Athenians had it really well off and, and then they would just sat around talking about philosophy all day. They were really weird. All right. <clears throat> But you can see kind of Paul is vexed, all the idols, the weird people, talking about nothing all day long, pooling their ignorance and enjoying it. This is hard on Paul. Wouldn't it be hard on you and I? 
be hard on, hard on Bob Corliss. You imagine? You know, Bob would be, mm-hmm, guys, man, I'm telling you what. It's hard to hear this kind of stuff all day. It's hard to hear people proclaim foolishness all the time and revel in it and roll in it and do nothing but that. All right, verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. Now Paul gets to preach to these folks. And he said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, this I preach to you. Verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Now, the appointed times and boundaries of habitation, just a little note, this is talking about the geographic boundaries of a nation and the duration of time that that nation survives on earth. Take an example, uh, the nation of Babylon. God determined their borders and the length of time that Babylon survived as a nation. Is Babylon a nation today? Somebody almost said yes, and I'm not going to point out who it is. Babylon's not a nation today, is it? We have people who may, well, we do have people who identify themselves as Babylonians. But Babylon is not a nation. What nation is Babylon in today? Iraq. Now we have the borders of Iraq. Who determined those? We might be tempted to say the 1920s, whatever, accord or whatever, but but God appointed that. And the duration of time that Iraq is going to be a nation, God knows that. God determines it. God determined our borders, right? And he determined how long or how short the United States is going to endure. God does that for every nation. All right, now verse 27. Why does he do these things? Why is it that, 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 that he's uh, made from one blood every nation on earth, given them geographical borders, pointed the duration of their nation? Why did he do those things? Verse 27, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him. And find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. Imagine groping in the darkness for something that's right there. Verse 28. For in him we live and move and breathe. As even some of your own poets have said. For we also are his children. Being then the children of God. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we will hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among them whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Demonis, and others with them. Let's pray. Lord, I ask you to shine a light on your word today. Show us how we can understand it and how we can apply it to our own lives. We are not the first ones to confront a nation of of people very, very different from us and very non-Christian. This has been happening since the world began. And so, Lord, I pray that we would learn from history, from your word, that shows us how godly men have confronted this in the past. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.
All right, I want to talk a little bit about the culture there. I'm not going to reveal anything that's outside this uh, text, really, and nothing that you don't already know. And then we're going to talk about how is it we're going to reach a decaying world, a dying and decaying world. What was Athens like? What kind of city was Athens? Athens is a really famous place in the, in the old world. Now, today, Athens is not, I mean, it's kind of on, on those uh, Mediterranean tours. You've got to stop in Athens, and you've got to see the, the ruins and things like that. And so it's a city that is full of history, but it's not much going on in Athens today. Would you agree? They're not the mover and shaker in the European Union. They're not the big man on campus. They're kind of the small guy that works down in maintenance, okay? That's Athens, Greece today. Athens, Greece in that day was not at its prime. It had kind of passed its prime and it was starting to decline. Rome was more the big thing at that time. And yet, Athens was the seat of academia for the whole world. That is where so many philosophies and religions and, and, and other disciplines of study were come up with. Athens was uh, a place where they discussed, long before the time of Christ, they discussed evolution, they discussed atheism, they discussed deism, theism, pluralism, many other isms were discussed in Athens. Really, it truly was the seat of academia for the whole world. It was the seat of pagan philosophy for the whole world. Remember, uh, even as kids in school, we read about the Greek uh, deities and, and, and the, the Greek, the Homer's Iliad and Homer's Odyssey and those kind of things. And we learned about Zeus and all these kind of weirdness, right? And it's, you read it and you think, wow, does anybody really believe this stuff? I don't know that they believed it, but they came up with it in Athens. That's where all this stuff came from. Athens was very learned they were affluent, they were smug, they were better than you and me, condescending to people like us. They called uh, Paul a seed picker, an idle babbler, some of your translations say. And yet they were also very superstitious. Now America today, in, in some ways at least, maybe we could say we're the seat of academia for the world. I think England would claim that, um, but we're bigger than they are, so why not just say it's us? Uh, and there's, there's, you know, there's other places maybe we'd say, well, this is, you know, this is really, but we are an academic center to the world. But we're not all that superstitious in America. We're not, our, our, our towns aren't full of idols, would you agree? You could say, well, what about, you know, the idols that we have in our life, like TV and stuff? Yeah, I, I understand that, but we, we're not so much superstitious as that nation and that city were. They were very superstitious, very learned, and yet very superstitious. They had idols everywhere. And just in case that the right idol wasn't in their town, they decided very wisely, maybe, let's erect an altar to the unknown God. Let's make sure that we get the right one to an unknown God. Paul, that really struck him. That meant something to him. He was going to use that and exploit it to share the gospel. That's what Greece, Athens was like. So it was kind of Ivy League, like some of our eastern seaboard cities or England or Cambridge, things like that. But it was also very superstitious, maybe like India, where they have idols everywhere. Anybody been to India? I've not been to India, so I can't raise my hand, but I want to encourage you to raise yours. Sheila's been there, Bill's been there. You know, and we've seen pictures, and there's idols everywhere, all over the place. It's overwhelming. That's kind of a different mix, isn't it? Different than the United States. I think the United States 
maybe is going in that direction. All right, just a couple of questions. We see three places in Athens that Paul preached. Um, Let me go to verse 17. He said he was reasoning in the synagogue. So I'm going to call that church. He was reasoning with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. They were not believers that we know of yet because that we know of, nobody had been a missionary to Athens. All very well may have heard this stuff before as far as the Jews and God-fearing Greeks. But he was in church preaching. And as well, he was in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So that's two places that he was preaching. The synagogue and the marketplace. Just to be at a place where lots of people were. And there's places like that in Laramie, by the way. I knew a pastor named Doug Peck in Shoshone, Wyoming. Great pastor. He would hang out at the post office in Shoshone to make sure he got everyone. And he had a lot of friends. He knew people here, there, visited everybody. But, but he knew there were people that he would never come across. 600 people. And, and, and there were just a number of them that he would never come across. So he would hang out at the post office so he could share with everyone. Paul went to the marketplace because everybody has to shop virtually every day, don't they? So they're all going to be at the marketplace. Who were the people he was preaching to? Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. Those are people that are like him culturally. And then whoever else was out in the marketplace, be they similar to him or different. Remember it says in verse, was it 19? 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were talking with him. The leading academ- ac- academics. He was talking to those people. Were they like Paul? They were very educated like Paul, but in a very different education system. And quite honestly, offensive to Paul. Have you been around people who are offensive to you and what they believe? If you haven't, you've just been at home for a few years. They're everywhere, all over the place, wherever you go. How are we going to reach these people? How did Paul do it? Now, I want you to apply this. We're going to go through, so I think there's seven points here. Uh, The seventh one says other notes. So in reality, there's more than seven. That's terrible for me to do, but um, I stopped counting. I want you to apply these ideas to your gift Every one of us is different. Now, Sam's going to minister differently than Aaron, right? Sam's going to be out there in public boldly proclaiming to groups of people. Aaron's not going to do as much of that. She's going to be more one-on-one. Is that right? Small groups of people, whatever. Every one of us is different. David Grafe is going to do it differently than Valerie Picard. We're going to so apply this to your own gift. If you have the gift of mercy and you love talking one-on-one with people who are hurting, apply it to your gift. If you have the gift of preaching to groups of people, apply it to that. And I'm going to try to help you apply that to your gift as well. The first thing that Paul did, and that you and I should do with this kind of thing, when our spirit is vexed, when our spirit is provoked, when we just really want to go home, preach. Don't hide. That's the first thing that Paul did. It says in verse 16, his spirit was provoked, Behold, in the city full of idols, verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogues. So he preached. That's a good thing. Most of us, listen, there is a great opportunity with people who are very different than us. Many of them have not heard about Christ. And what they've heard has been from a jerk. That's just the way it is. You have the opportunity to reach them first. To be the first one to share with them. You have the opportunity to make a difference. 
but it's gonna hurt. Your spirit's gonna be provoked with some of the things they say, some of the things they do, some of the things they say to you about God or about Christian people or about uh, your president or their president or whoever is in office at the time. It's really gonna make you mad. You are gonna be provoked. So preach, don't go home. Don't, don't feel like you can't say anything. Say something, don't hide. Paul's spirit was provoked in Athens, provoked to jealousy for God. Your spirit's been provoked by idol worship or godless philosophy or false religion or, or uh, gender identity or some of the things that we didn't have to deal with back in the day and now we have to deal with. It's not back in the day anymore, now it's now. We have to deal with all kinds of weird stuff. It's not new though, is it? It's not intimidating to the Holy Spirit. You know, he's able to break through that stuff. What did Paul do? He preached. He didn't hide. Get out there and make friends. If you're not a preacher, make friends. If you're a preacher, preach and maybe see if anybody will be your friend afterwards. <laughs> I say that tongue in cheek, but I mean exactly that. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you more about that later. When, when, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll wait till later. Make friends with people. Love them. Realize that they are lost. There's a lot of things I want to say, but I'm going to wait until my notes get there. Don't hide from them. Give them an opportunity to repent. Somebody gave you the opportunity to repent when you were ugly and dirty, when you were bad, when you were an enemy of God. Somebody gave you that opportunity, so give it to somebody else. What will that person be like when they're your brother or sister in Christ? What will it be like to share their, their joy? and, their, and their, You know, I, I was telling my boys about Mike Gorski the other day. I said, you know what? You know, they love Mike. We have pictures of Mike with the boys and Mike hugging them, Mike throwing them, Mike doing all kinds of things with them. You know, Mike uh, lived with us for a while, kind of. I think it was more like he metastasized himself to us somehow. And we love Mike Gorski, but Mike Gorski was not always a person that we would have loved. He was a person that would have provoked our spirit and vexed us. But somebody cared about him. Right? David Martin cared about him. And I can't remember the two other guys' names at the moment. Can you? Uh, Andy Oman and Joey Sullivan. Thank you, guys. I'm sorry. I forgot. Andy and Joey, if you're watching, I apologize. <clears throat> but... Somebody loved Mike Gorski enough to be his friend and share the gospel when they had opportunity. What will it be like for your nasty, progressive friend when they come to know Jesus Christ? It's going to be awesome. We can point out many other people like that uh, right in this church. Make friends. Get out there. Don't be intimidated. Get out there and say something for the Lord. Number two, this is verse 17 through 20. Realize that not all people hate Christians. You're going to be surprised that a lot of people don't mind Christians at all. They don't, they don't really have, I mean, they don't like Christianity, but they don't mind if you're a Christian. Do you uh, dislike people because they're LDS? No. We just think, oh, yeah, they're LDS. Yeah, okay. Maybe we'll be friends. I don't know. We don't hate them. We don't go, oh, LDS. We don't do that. And the world doesn't mostly do that to us. There are a few notable exceptions, and we've seen it. I, I, uh, my goodness, I think we'd been in Jackson a month, and Sheila and I went, got invited to a party. And uh, uh, Jackson's a big party culture. 
uh, I'm learning to become a better partier. Sheila didn't have to learn that. <laughs> Sheila was born with a party gene. And, you know, when we go to see her relatives and friends, this is a rabbit trail and has nothing to do with anything. But Filipinos know how to party. You know, they, they sit around, talk, laugh, and eat. That's all it takes. And, uh, you know, I'd like, oh, party, great. That sounds great. Don't invite me to your party. But I'm learning to like parties better and to go there because people are there. Everybody in Jackson is there, and that's where you meet them. You go to parties. So we're at a party, having this great conversation with this lady, about three, four minutes long. She says, what do you do? I said, I'm a preacher. And she went, and she turned around and left. She didn't say another word. It was over. Okay, you'll know. You think, I wonder if this person, you know, hates Christians. Okay, sometimes you'll know if they hate them. <laughs> That's fine. I don't know that I've seen that lady since. I probably have, and I don't remember who she is, but um, we're not friends, you know. Sometimes you can't be friends with everyone, and that's fine. The Lord will help you manage your time, and he'll take some right out of your life. But not all people hate Christians. Verse 17 through 20, let's look at the response of people in Athens, pagan people, academic people, to Paul the Apostle. Verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Everybody was hearing about this guy. And also some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this seed picker, idle babbler, weird guy, wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign deities, foreign gods, because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. So what do they do? Do they ignore him and say, stay away from us? Verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, can we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? You're saying some weird stuff. We want to know what these things mean. Wouldn't you be excited if your friend said, could you tell me what the Bible says? You think, oh, what? That's what they said to Paul. Now listen, there's a lot of people like this. And, and you just got to say it. You just got to talk about the word. It's just, it's a part of your life now that you know Jesus Christ. You don't have to be ashamed of that. You know, I was having lunch with two ladies who were uh, lawyers for the ACLU. That was their job here in Wyoming. <clears throat> Maybe you know them. And uh, that provokes my spirit, you know, ACLU. It really does. But they want to interview me about what I thought about immigration because I'm doing immigration work on the side. And, and they want to know, what do you, you, know, what do you think? What, what, what does this idle babbler have to say about immigration? <clears throat> I got to share with them what I say and why. They said, well, Christians don't believe the way you do. I said, well, you know, Fox News kind of tells us what to believe about immigration, and, and it's from an Arizona perspective, and I'm getting into a, the weeds here, but that, that is something that a lot of believers hear, and that's what they know about immigration. I said, but let me show you what the Bible says about immigration. Hmm? 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 They're a little stiff. What do we do now? They're sitting there drinking coffee, you know, so they can't move. And uh, <laughs> I got to show them a few verses in the Bible that it talks about immigration, raise your eyebrows. I don't know if those ladies have ever heard anything from a Christian before about God's word, but they saw something that they liked and begrudgingly had to acknowledge. The Bible says something good. That's pretty cool, guys, and I didn't set that up. God set that up, but it provokes your spirit. You know, I, I got to talk to him about how I don't like the fact that they're mean to churches and stuff, and they acknowledge that, yeah, we're pretty rough on Christians. Well, you know, Listen, God sets this kind of stuff up. You just open your mouth with God's word. 
You just do that. I wish I could say, I shared the whole gospel and those girls got down on their knees and got saved and paid for my coffee, but I can't say that. But I can say this. I got to give them some of God's word and maybe the first person to do so. I'm thankful for that. What's that going to be like in heaven if I never see them here on earth and yet they get saved one day? You know, and I was the first. Wow, what a privilege. You be the first. If you can't be first, be second. Okay. <clears throat> what did they think about Paul and his message, the academic elite? They didn't hate it. They were interested. They wanted to hear it. Once they heard it, some scoffed. Okay, they're out of the game. They're not, they're not going to be back, maybe. But some stuck around and said, can we hear this again? Can we hear this again? Oh, man. What an opportunity. I love that when that happens. What they want him to do with his message, they want him to bring it to them and tell him, what, do you, what, you know, what is it that you think? You think the unbelieving world is curious about the gospel? I think they are. I think a lot of them are. Have you ever ministered to somebody from China who's never been allowed to hear the gospel before? They'll come up to you and ask, you're a Christian? Could you tell me? What does the Bible say? Because they're not allowed to hear. They're curious. Muslims are curious. Even your progressive friends are curious about it. What does it say? If you set your, here's one simple thing you can do. Let everybody know that you're a Christian. Let everybody know. Without even saying anything any type sometimes, you just, oh, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I believe everything in the Bible. Leave it there and let people come to you. Let you be the person, the go-to guy or girl in your office. When they have a Bible question, they come to you. There's one very simple thing you can do. That's not all you can do, but that's a way to open the door, isn't it? Let them know, and when they have a question, they come to you. They're not going to come to Sally over there or John over there. They don't even know if he's a Christian or LDS or what, but they know you are. There are people who set themselves up that way, and people keep asking them questions. All right. Um, what about you? Does your progressive coworker like you? Do you think they like you? That's a more important question. What do you think they think? Do you have a preset mindset that says, they're not a believer, so they don't like me? That will hinder you. I grew up in an LDS town. Uh, my mother... Very well-meaning, wanting to protect us children from LDS doctrine, which is a very good thing. It's a very necessary thing. By the way, you guys live in an LDS town, and you know what I'm talking about. But they set me up to be afraid of non-believers. Without meaning to, they set me up to be afraid of non-believers because non-believers don't like you, and they're dangerous. Now it ends up, non-believers are dangerous, but only to a point. They can't hurt your soul, just your body. And nobody hurt our body in, in, in level. And we were fine. At the same time, I was set up to be afraid of non-believers. Don't set yourself up to be afraid of non-believers by thinking they don't like me. They don't like me. For the most part, non-Christians are a blank slate when it comes to Christians. They may not like Christianity, but they may like you. What you look like, how you talk, what comes out of your heart and out of your mouth is more important to your friend than what church you go to. It really is. It's not always true. We know there's people who, as soon as they hear you're a Christian, they're out the door. Those are a small percentage, in my opinion. Let people like you. Get rid of that mindset that's in you. Don't we have an entire mindset in the church today 
that says protect our kids at all costs, right? Remove them from the world and keep them right here in the basement. That is not necessarily a healthy way to raise children because we put fear in their hearts that the unbelieving world hates them and they don't interface with that world. That is a great tragedy to the church's committee. I'm not saying, if you've chosen a certain type of schooling, I'm not saying that. I am saying, do what you can to take the fear of non-believers out of your children's heart and do what it takes to take that fear of non-believers out of your heart. Do not go into a crowd of people with a chip on your shoulder, a Christian chip, that says, well, I'm a Christian, so they don't. Not everybody will like you, but some will. And I think that it'll be more than you think. <clears throat> Realize that not all people hate Christians. A lot of them would love to be our friend. You swallow your politics and your preferences, and you'll have an opportunity to talk to them. You take those first few hits they give you. Well, I think Christians are bad because, all right, that's what you think. That's all right. What do you think about? And ask them a question. Don't, get, don't feel like you've got to back up. Republicans. Don't feel like you got to back up Donald Trump. Don't feel like you got to back up Jesus Christ. You just talk about Jesus the way he is. Jesus is wonderful. You can't go wrong if you talk about him. All right, have a gospel friendship with them. Now, number three, what else did Paul do? He started with something that he agreed with. So this is our third thing. Start with something that you agree with. Now, it's going to be hard at times to find that, isn't it? If you're with a Republican guy who likes to hunt, and he wears a red plaid shirt and has a big beard. No problem. We're best buddies already. This is so cool. You know, I like red shirts. You like red shirts. You know, this is great. But so many people are not like that. You have to find something in common with them. I'm not talking about a hobby. I'm not talking about what they dress, but rather something that they believe. Let me give you an example from Paul. Verse 22 and 23. There's two things at least, maybe more, that Paul agrees with, with the Athenians, and they're really small points. I mean, he had to really search to find something he agreed with with the Athenians, but he started at that point. Verse 22 says, when he, oh, I'm in chapter 18. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. We could agree with that. Oh, you're religious. That's not a bad place to start. But not much there, but it's something. Verse 23 for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, and this is a big one, I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. And he starts from there. What you worship in ignorance, I'm going to preach to you. What was his point of connection with him? They had said, we don't really know who God is. And he said, you're right. I'll share who he is. Now, that's not a big point, is it? That's not a major point. It's not a lot of common ground. Their common ground was, we think we might not know who he is. Paul said, you're right. I don't think you know who he is either. You're ignorant about that. That is a point of common ground. We're going to talk about that point in a minute. Verse 28 is another one. He takes one of their poets. He says this, uh, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring." We are his children. We are God's children. That's what he's saying. There's two things that he agrees with them on. Now, he doesn't agree totally. Okay? He doesn't say, hey, you're worshiping the unknown God the correct way. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you know, we really are all his children. There's really only one way or many ways to God, and it's so cool. He doesn't say any of that stuff. 
he did say, acknowledge where they were correct. We'll talk about both those things. He agreed that they were ignorant. It was something that did not compromise the gospel message. We can't really agree on some things, but you may be able to dig a little deeper and find something. Let me suggest that some of the very common religious beliefs in America today, we have things in common with. One is agnosticism. There's some important things we have in common with agnosticism, at least one. Another is, I think it's called pluralism, where there's many roads to God. And another one is karma. Those are three very pervasive beliefs in the United States today. And we'll talk about what we have in common with those. It's not much, but it's a good start. He almost compliments them. He says, you guys are really religious in every way. That's kind of a compliment. At least they felt like it was a compliment. I think he felt like, this is weird. Everything you guys are doing is so dumb. But he doesn't say it that way. He says, you're very religious in every way. You're not always, with your friend one-on-one, you're not going to be able to say everything you want to say the first time sometimes. Sometimes you're going to be able to say one or two things. When you're preaching, it's different. You can't really say one or two things and leave it lie. You have to give them the whole gospel message. Isn't that correct? But when you're one-on-one with a person who you see a lot, you may not be able to do that. You may not need to. Paul gives them the whole gospel, but he starts with a point they have in common. Now, he didn't find a bunch of points in common. He didn't agree with um, all their idols. I don't know that he agreed with any of their idols, but he used one as an example because he found one that he could use. He didn't agree with all their poets, but he found a few that he could agree in some little respect. Even though they were mistaken, he could use that as a foundation. Let me talk about agnosticism for a minute. When it says the unknown God, that they were worshiping him in ignorance, that's agnosticism, isn't it? We don't know what God, we don't know who he is. And they just add a little thing on top of it and say, and we can't know, so I know more than you do because I know that I can't know and you don't know that you can't know, you know? So that's what agnosticism is. Is there a point of agreement with Christianity? Yes, they don't know who God is. Really, when you look at it, that's not agreeing with agnosticism at all. (laughs) But it is agreeing with one little point, and that is, yes, many are ignorant of God. Many people do not know who he is. When a person says, I don't know who he is, that's easier to work with that than maybe someone that's an atheist, isn't it? You've got a little platform to start on. These people were not atheists for the most part. They believed in God. They just didn't know who he was. I don't want to say they're believers. I don't want to say that they were on the right track. I do want to say Paul started with that little thing. Now, what about pluralism or or everybody's going to heaven and, and all roads lead there? Here's what one of their poets said. We are all his what? Now, what is our doctrine, Christian person? There's no seminary student in here. Is that right? I was hoping to just pound those kids. But I'll have to wait to another time. That, that's the secret. That's why people become seminary professors, is to pound seminary kids. Now, seriously, no, I'm not a doctor. All right, here's the thing, guys. Pluralism, we're all his children. What does our doctrine say? Somebody blurted out. He's a creator. Okay, you're 
taking this bad doctrine that they said and making it righter. And that's what Paul was doing. And we know that non-believers are not God's children, that we are God's children. Those of us who know Jesus Christ are his children. We know that. And yet there is a sense, and we believe it in doctrine, that he is the father of us all and that he's the creator. Now, it's hard to give our non-believing friend that privilege of being a child of God, and we really can't give that away as much as we'd like to, to make them a child of God, but we can't. But they can share in this one little thing that God made them, and it means something. That God made me. I didn't just happen. I wasn't a product of some unholy union. God made me. Every person on earth can share in that. He took that. They were mistaken in some ways, but he took it and made it right doctrine. He took agnosticism and he made it right doctrine. Yes, you're ignorant, but I'm going to tell you the truth. Karma is another one, and I'll share about that in a little bit. That's an interesting one. Number four, verse 24 through 26, Paul just begins to talk about how great God is. This is the fourth point. Just talk about who God is. With your friend who has no Bible background, talk about how great he is. Use some verses, but talk about who God is. God is absolutely wonderful. He is amazing. What are we going to do in heaven for eternity? Look at him and go, wow, he is so awesome. And then when we're done considering that attribute of after about 1.5 million years, he'll bring up another attribute and we'll go, oh, I had no idea right? And we'll just be in awe of him for eternity. That can start now. And you can be the first one to talk about how awesome God is to a person. So he talks about how, uh, what is it? Verse 24. That God made all the earth, all the heavens and everything in it. He talked about how he gives verse 25, life and breath to all things. Verse 26, he made every nation from one and determined their bounds and habitations. Pretty incredible. What are you going to say about God to your friend? I, now, I listen, I love talking about God with non-believers because God is really attractive. He is the friend of sinners. And when they need him, oh, there's no better friend. Listen, God is so incredible. Now, God is also very, very scary. Jesus is so powerful and so dreadful when you think of him and when you think of his judgment that's hanging over your head and could drop at any moment. It is scary. It is dreadful. But then at the same time, he's so awe-inspiring and so beautiful. He is, in a word, irresistible. Many people would like to know him. I'm going to say something that doesn't sound very doctrinally correct. Many people would like to know him, but do not have a way of finding out who he is. That is tragic. Many people who do not know Christ would like to. I'll talk about that doctrinally in a minute, but for now, some of these people were looking for God, but they didn't even know, perhaps. Now, just spend some time describing the one you love to your friend in casual conversation. Here's how it starts. A very, similar, very simple way to start. Oh, thank God for that. You know, somebody's talking about that. Oh, you know, oh my goodness. I prayed about that the other day and I was talking to the Lord and just, when you start like that, it just starts flowing, doesn't it? 
I remember hearing about Sam Martin trying to tell somebody about the Lord, and he just kept stopping and didn't say anything. He says, all I want to tell you was that Jesus died for your sins and rose again. Said it in about four seconds, the whole gospel, and walked away. That's pretty incredible. But it just starts flowing if you just open the door in casual conversation. You're talking about the shooting in Texas, and you say, thank God it didn't happen here. Or, man, I just... I love the fact that God protected us. Whatever it is, start right there. That's one way to do it. And then just talking about God, how incredible he is. I love it when the conversation turns to a point where you can share God's love for the, everyone in the world, for the non-believer, how he reaches out, and how could anyone show their love in a greater way than sending their own son to die? I just love talking about that non-believers because I think God is irresistible. Do people resist him? Yeah, every day. Some of us resisted him for a time. There came a time when we embraced him. We couldn't resist him any longer. Because to those of us who are coming to know Jesus Christ, he is irresistible. We cannot resist him. Only for a time. Because he's so incredible. And because he is pulling us to him. All right, next thing. Um, Number five, verse 27, 28. Some of these people are seeking God. Some non-believers are seeking God. I'm saying something you agree with, but it doesn't sound right doctrinally. Verse 27 and 28 says this, that they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. What kind of people have to grope? People who can't see. The non-believing world can't see. They're blind. And they're groping Hoping to find, I'm adding that word hoping, I understand that. But groping to find him, maybe they will find him, it says. Verse 27, 28, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. He is close to us. For in him we live and move and breathe or have our being. Our next breath is is from God, it's right there. Some of these folks that we are talking about in Laramie, in Jackson, in other parts of the world are seeking for God and maybe they don't even know it. They're looking for him in a place that they're not going to find him, but they're looking for him. The Spirit will be convicting them. They're seeking God and yet they cannot come to know God by those convictions alone. They're left to grope in the darkness. That's a sad picture, isn't it? Think about your friend groping in the darkness, wanting to find God and not able to because he has no one to tell him. It is God's plan, according to Romans 10. I'll get to there in a second. They're left to grope in the darkness, but God has put us in their lives. That's the good news. This is the way, by sharing the gospel with your friend, that is the way that God has chosen for people to get saved. The Holy Spirit is convicting people, but that alone will not save a person. They must hear from a human mouth or a human pen. Read a book. It must enter their heart, God's word. Romans 10, what does it say? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But how are they going to hear unless they preach to them? How are they going to preach unless they're sent? That is God's way. Someone has to tell them the gospel. What a tragic thing, someone looking for God and not being able to find him. 
Now, how will you know if they're seeking or not? I don't think we can know that. Not until somebody gets saved. Um, we won't really know. But there are some practical tips to make you think, hey, maybe this person might be seeking or maybe not. One, if they hate you, you say Jesus' name and they hate you. Okay, they're probably not seeking. And I'm not saying go try to chase that person down and be a friend with them. The Lord will put that together if he wants. Okay, but that's a pretty good indicator that just the mention of Jesus' name or, or the fact I'm a Christian and they turn around and they don't want to see again, pretty good indicator that maybe they're not seeking him. All right, all I'm saying by that is I'm not trying to say they will never be saved. What I'm trying to say is you don't have to invest in that person. If they don't want to be any part, you don't, you don't have to chase them down. What about a person who you share with, but they still want to be your friend? And they maybe even like you more after you share. And they say, hey, can we, can we just get together and watch TV sometimes and talk? Maybe God, uh, maybe that one is seeking God. That's a pretty good indicator. So practically, that's who you build a relationship with. You share the Lord Jesus with them in some capacity, and they still want to be your friend. Keep pursuing that one. Okay? That's just practical stuff. Now, doctrinal. You may be doubtful that unsaved people are seeking after God at all. After all, we have Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeks after him. Uh, they're quoting various Old Testament psalms and things like that, like that Psalm 53, Psalm 14, saying no one seeks after God. You're correct about that. No one seeks after God unless uh, they are saved. And we classify folks as two classifications in our doctrine. We have the saved, and we have the unsaved. I don't mean to say that Dave is saved and Jack is not, but we have saved and unsaved. That's what we have. But the Bible talks about a third classification, the Jehovah's Witnesses. No, I'm just kidding. Now, it talks about another classification, and that is those who are being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this. <clears throat> Doctrinally, maybe we would call them the... Uh, uh, the, the regenerate are those who are being regenerated, those who are being born again. First uh, Corinthians one eighteen. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. You got a friend that says, "What's the dumbest thing I ever heard?" And they never come and see you again. That's fine. But one who says, "I want to hear more," maybe that one is seeking God. Why in the world would a non-believer seek God? Because God is seeking them. We have to remember that God seeking a person is something we can't see and we can't do, but it's happening. It's a spiritual reality. Yes, they're saved and unsaved. And that person, if he's in the process, well, we could argue, but he's not saved until he's saved. I'm not saying that, that, you know, the first time he hears about the Lord, he's in the process, so he's good. If he dies right there, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is there are people looking for God. But they've got to have someone share the word with them. It has to happen. You be that person. You be the one to be the first. You be the one to lead them to the Lord. Don't let your doctrine be incomplete. Don't let your doctrine steer you away from people. Don't let your doctrine help you avoid a crowd of people and say, well, they're not saved, and so they're not, they don't want to hear. They want to hear. You'd be surprised who wants to hear. You'd be very surprised who wants to hear. We will be very surprised and continue to be surprised to see who gets saved. 
People who we thought, well, they won't, they won't want to. And yet they do want to hear. I could, some of you know James Fryer. <clears throat> I knew James Fryer in college, and he was, uh, oh, he's one of the few people I describe as a drug-eating freak. You know, that was uh, something that he did all the time. Man, he, he had a lot of drugs. He tried them all by, long before he graduated from high school. And I knew him at the university when he was stoned. But I saw him in our church one day, and I thought, what is this guy? I, I, I had a connection with James on campus. It wasn't a good connection. Uh, I was convinced that there was something very, very wrong with him, very, very messed up, and there was. And yet I see him in our church one day, and I find out he'd been saved for six months because I hadn't seen him for some time. He got saved at the church catty corner from us, the old Assembly God Church, and then started coming to LVC. I couldn't believe it. You just don't know that's going to happen to. So share with those people. He was being saved. I didn't even know it. It was right under my nose. Last part of the uh, sermon is verse 31, 30 and 31 is, is judgment and the gospel. You got to have both the bad news and the good news. It says verse 30, therefore having overlooked the time of ignorance, God's done, uh, uh, you know, Hand out mercy for ignorance. He says, now God is declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising from the dead. He gets to the gospel. He gets to the judgment and he gets to the gospel. But he does it in a way that is really impactful to me. Coming up with a little common ground, sharing about who God is, how great he is, realizing that some of them are seeking God, they're groping after him, but they're ignorant and blind. They know no other way. Let me give you an example of karma. Again, this is another thing. Some of our, many, many of our friends that don't believe in God believe in karma. Why do they believe in karma? By the way, what is karma? Karma is a belief in good and evil and consequences, appropriate consequences for good an appropriate consequence for evil, correct? It's inanimate, maybe in their mind, or maybe it's a person in their mind, or maybe it's an entity up there, a board, that decides if you've been good or evil and what we should do about it, karma. Many people in America are very flippant about it. You say, oh, that's karma for that person. <laughs> in reality, many people believe in it, one degree or another, that there will be justice for good or evil. Why do they believe that? Conscience is one of them. Let me do conscience second. First thing, they see events. And there's something inside them that says there has to be justice somewhere. So-and-so got away with it. There has to be justice somewhere. Who put that in our hearts? The Holy Spirit does. Let me quote you a verse. John 16, 8 says this. The Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Let me say that another way. Concerning good, evil, and the consequences for both. Now, if that's all you have, the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin, righteousness, and judgment, you may come up with a system like karma, like the Hindus did. You may come up with some, something else, some kind of cosmic judgment, some kind of cosmic blessing for good and evil. There must be something. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying those people are on the road to heaven. Here's another thing I'm not saying. I'm not saying that that's the seed of Christianity. It's not. 
All I'm saying is they're ignorant people, but the Holy Spirit has been there before us convicting the world. When it says in John 16, 8, you can look it up if you'd like, it says, he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Which part of the world is he talking about? I think it's all. I think it'd be very hard-pressed to say that it's anyone but all. That the Holy Spirit is speaking to every human being on the planet. It's not enough to save them. He's also speaking through creation, right? Psalm 19, that the heavens declare the glory, there's no language where his voice isn't heard. It's not enough to save them. And so people make sense of what they're hearing both from the Holy Spirit and from the world around them. They're trying to make sense of those things. As a believer, what can you do with those things? Use it as a springboard. Oh, you believe in karma? You believe in good and evil in the world? You believe in a righteous standard? You believe in judgment afterwards? Or, or what do you think? Let them talk. Let them talk about what he, and, and then just tell them, you know where I, you know, do you know why you believe that? Then show them the verse, John 16, 8. He's convicting the world of sin, that's evil, righteousness, that's good, and judgment, consequences. The Holy Spirit is out there doing that in people that have never heard the gospel. You can be like Paul and declare to them justice and righteousness, evil and good, the way the Bible describes it. You can do that. You can be the first one. I like doing that kind of thing. Don't be intimidated by that. You know, the servant of God, according to Titus 1.8, says that he needs to be able to exhort in sound doctrine, but refute those who contradict there's a lot of folks contradicting. Let's work on that. How can I contradict those folks? How can I correct their doctrine? You want to get to the gospel with your friend. You can't just leave it with karma, but that may be your first conversation. You just talk about karma and a little bit about the Bible. That may be your first conversation. Preachers, you can't do that. You got to lay the whole thing out there. Good, bad, the ugly. But with your conversations with your friends, you just do what the Lord gives you opportunity to do. You share about that thing, whatever that is. Just a few other notes. How do you treat their obvious sinfulness of your friend? Specific sins. You know, they're an alcoholic. Aberrant sins. They're something, whoa. You're what? Things, sins that get in the way of us wanting to be their friends. How do we deal with those things? We need to let them know they're sinful. They say, well, what does the Bible say? Well, it's a sin. But we're going to do that differently than maybe we've seen in the past. We're not going to do it the moral majority way. How does Paul deal with their sin? Now, the Athenians had every sin that we can imagine. They had mistaken gender identity in Athens, had homosexual sin in Athens. They had atheism in Athens. They had, name it, they had it. <clears throat> How's Paul, what does Paul say in this sermon about their sin? Nothing. He just says there's judgment coming. That's what he says. So everyone has to repent. He doesn't call them out for this or that. The sins that are tempting for us to stop being their friend if they're a believer, we deal with that in a certain way. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that. But if they're a non-believer, it tells that we deal with it in a different way. Let me, let me tell you what that says. You can turn to 1 Corinthians 5 if you want. I'm going to turn there. 
I'm not a very good quoter. Verse 9, Paul writes the Corinthians a letter before 1 Corinthians. Not an inspired letter, it's just a letter like you and I would write. Dear Corinthians, how are you? And verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But I didn't mean with the immoral people, the sexually immoral people of the world, because why? Then you'd have to go where? St. George, where nobody's immoral. Where do you go? You have to leave the planet. You have to go off the planet to find people who are not fornicating. So let's not make that an issue between you and your non-believing friend. Don't let that separate you from that guy you hang out with. You know, guys, you hang out with this guy. Don't let it separate from you because he's a fornicator. If he's a believer or calls himself a believer, that's a different deal. First Corinthians 5 deals with that in detail. But if it's a non-believer, let's not separate from them because of that. We are tempted to separate ourselves from people who are very different from us politically, very different from us sexually, very different from us whatever, chemically. Um, and yet, we don't need to do that. We don't need to put that on them. They are sinners. It's what they do. Let me give you a couple other uh, verses. Uh, Matthew 7, 5 is one. I'm just going to give you this one. It says, talking about the law, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 1 through 5, he says, don't judge lest you be judged. And then he tells you about the various judgments, various laws from the Old Testament that you're wanting to put on your neighbor. You're, you're, you're disobeying this tiny little law here. Meanwhile, you're disobeying this giant log sin that's coming out your eye. Right? You remember that whole thing? He says, so don't judge that way. And then he says, don't judge this way in verse 5. Don't throw, your, throw what is holy to the dogs, and don't throw your pearls before swine. Now, who are the dogs and the swine? Jesus doesn't mean to belittle these people in that way. It's not, I, don't, I don't believe that's his intent. But he is using terms that are very familiar to Jewish people to refer to the Gentiles. Don't throw all your laws on them. All right, what happens if you do? They'll trample them under their foot, if they're swine, they'll turn and bite you if they're dogs, right? You ever been bit by throwing out your righteous standard? And you're right, by the way, your righteous standard is correct. You ever been bit? Maybe that's not the best place to start <laughs> with our non-believing friends. Uh, Sheila and, and the group she worked with worked very hard to bring the abstinence speaker to Jackson to the schools. And I have no problem with that. Like that's a very, very good thing. But that idea was trampled underfoot and then people began to turn and rend Sheila and her friends that tried to do that. Okay, now they weren't trying to say, everybody be abstinent, you gotta stop sleeping around. They were just trying to give skills on a date how to say no. This is a very, very practical course. I, I, I thought it was a good course. And, and so for the people who don't want to, and, and the lady was very clear, if you don't want to have sex on a date, here's how not to. It's, it's very practical for non-believers and believers alike. But they turned and bit Sheila and the ladies that brought that to town. Your non-believing friend who is practicing homosexual, keep your pearls in your pocket for a while. All right? 
when they ask you or when it's the right time, you can tell them what the Bible says about that. But don't try to turn them straight as your goal. It's not your goal. They turn straight, live a long life, have 17 children, and go to hell. That is not an improvement. Maybe it makes their life easier, but it does not make their eternity easier. That's not their issue. Their issue is that they're a sinner. Deal with that. Christ is the answer to that. They want to deal with their homosexuality? Great. We've got the answer to that. The Bible has the answer to that. But don't make it your first thing, or they'll turn and rend you sometimes. The last thing I want to talk about is praying for them, praying with them. I, this is something that, especially when a person is belligerent, pray with them. Ask them, can I pray for you with, about this? Rarely do people say no. Rarely. Sometimes people are mocking you for what you believe. You know, let them mock and stuff. Say, well, okay, that's fine. Listen, I've just been praying for you. Is there anything I can pray for you about specifically? Pray for you right now if you want. People are amazed at that. You don't know how powerful that is unless you've done it in the non-believing world. I love praying with non-believers for their needs because so many have never been prayed for before, and it means something to them if they're seeking God. It means something. It's powerful. It's up and close with God, isn't it? Why else would we invite people to church so they can come and see God's people up close and see God up close? That is powerful. Pray with them right there in front of them. Maybe they have a little, everybody's got some little crisis. Pray for that with them. Talk to God with them. Share the gospel in a prayer to God in front of them. Whatever you want to do, that is powerful. What's the uh, end result of this sermon? It's not huge. And not all of our, not all of Paul's sermons were huge the first time, the results, and not all of ours are going to be huge, but it says, verse 34, some men joined Paul and believed. It gives us a couple of names. Others, verse 32, we want to hear you again. Some are still in, they haven't got saved, but they're interested. And there's others that sneer. They say, what in the world? That's weird. All right. That's where they're at. But there's others wanting to hear more. Others who got saved. If we don't hide, we will see those three things among our non-believing friends. We will see those three results. If we won't hide, if we'll share with those people. I'm looking forward to the rest of the Bible conference. The, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's the, uh, the Church in the Gospel Mission. It's right there on the monitor. But I'm looking very much forward to that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what your word says and how it gives us guidelines and ideas how to share your word with people, how to love people even though they're very unlovable, how to confront the world even though we'd rather hide from them. I ask you, Lord, that you'd open our mouths, open our hearts towards people who are very different. Let us see the results that Paul saw, Lord. It may be the first result we see is the sneering. Maybe the second one will be somebody says, well, I'd like to hear more. But there will be also the result where people get saved. Lord, I ask we not close our heart off to people and, and realize that you, uh, they may be uh, being saved, you may be drawing them. We want to be a part of that. Lord, those who you are not drawing, we don't even know, and yet sharing the gospel is a, is a part of that as well so that you can be righteous when you judged. So, Lord, I just pray that we'd be faithful. 
Pray for the rest of this conference, Lord, that it be something that honors you and that we can take away things in our heart to obey, to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.